Welcome to Talent First. This season of Talent First is the CISO season, brought to you by Edmonton Group Talent Access and hosted by me, Michelle Edmondson, Managing Partner for Cybersecurity Search. And why is this season focused on the pivotal role CISOs play in organisations? To talk to those in the security world who can dispel common misconceptions about the role, about qualifications, the so-called skills gap, and about what entry level really means, among many other topics. My guests this season also discuss how to thrive in security leadership, moving into the business and becoming a C-suite partner. In this episode, I speak to Nadia Elvatazi, who is founder of Thrive with EQ and speaks to me about how emotional intelligence is imperative for the CISO role. We had great fun recording this episode. So as ever, enjoy. I'm so pleased that you're my guest today, Nadja. I was a guest on your podcast last year, and I got to talk about my passion, which is recruiting and retaining women in cybersecurity. So for this season of Talent First, my thoughts turn straight to you and the great work that you do in this field. So thanks so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Michelle, for inviting me. I, uh, I'm very passionate about this topic and I enjoyed our conversation a lot, both offline and online. And I'm uh, pleased to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, no problem at all. So let's start by talking about your route into cybersecurity and your career so far. So my route in cybersecurity started actually in an unconventional way. I started, so let me go back uh, 20 years. I will let people guess my age. I won't, I won't uh, reveal it. But uh, two decades ago, I started working for NATO's helicopter man, or in the Ministry of Defense, actually. And then I moved into helicopter management agency, which is all about capability development and interoperability. So I was introduced to the digital um, world, digital transformation of technology early on within NATO. And then I uh, stayed with NATO for uh, nearly 20 years. And after six years, I moved into the what they uh, used to be NATO Command and Control Communication Information Agency, and cyber was already part of it. And then it got merged into a bigger agency where cybersecurity operations was part of our main mission to protect NATO's and affiliated networks from cyber uh, attacks. And that is also where the politicians, the industry, the military, you know, all these different sectors became quite interested because cyber was used as a hybrid warfare, information technology as a warfare. So my main job was always to translate these digital challenges on cyber threats as well into stakeholder uh, maps of the world. So my background is actually quite political, uh, international relations, communication. I, in past life, I was a psychologist because I love understanding human behavior and what makes people tick and work better together. 
So that's what I did also a lot within uh, my time at NATO, relationship building, stakeholder engagement. And even if I was born uh, and I stuttered uh, in, uh, at the first years in my life and teachers told me I, I would never speak correctly, <laughs> I worked on my speech and I love communication. So um, I'll do a lot of communication, translating what challenges mean in different maps of the world. So that's what I did at NATO mainly. And then in 2018, it was a pivotal point because I did this fellowship where I traveled across the Atlantic and I discovered there's a world outside NATO bubble and uh, it ignited my fire for entrepreneurship. And uh, that's when I decided I'm going and I came back to NATO. And although I loved my job, it was quite interesting working with uh, NATO's top political committee, military stakeholders. I absolutely loved it. But there was something missing because I really was passionate about emotional intelligence, how people work well together under this pressure and challenges. So I handed in my resignation. Uh, during my burnout phase, because I think when you're no longer aligned with what your passion is or what gives you energy, you need to kind of take a step back and think. Now, I uh, uh, fortunately now, but unfortunately then I didn't think so much. I just said, I'm going to quit and I'm going to start my consultancy one year before the pandemic. There was quite a resiliency test, but that helped me focus on, I saw the market demand for emotional intelligence training, but also for cybersecurity in the sense non-technical, but my unique combination of experience. So the fact that I've worked 20 years in crisis and security management, or the fact that I'm an emotional intelligence licensed coach, or that I have 20 years of actual practitioner, practitioner experience in isolations, they're not necessarily unique. But when you combine those, right, this is why I bring my passion, especially for highly technical fields, in helping people build this resilience so they fall less prey to scammers and criminals who use emotional manipulation, right, to keep that door shut as long and as much as possible, to help people recover or reduce their you know, risk for uh, navigating these cyber breaches. We are all uh, vulnerable. It's not if it's not when, but if, but also how do you work well together so you don't increase this this human surface attack? And also how do you implement it, right? You can have policies and processes, but how are people actually ready to make sound decisions when faced with pressure? We saw this every time when we look at case studies for HSE, for example, in 2021 in Ireland, there was no lack of uh, a common approach to cyber resilience. People were revert to pen and paper when it came, when data breach was happening. When you look at the Uber data breach in 2016 and Sullivan now speaking up and, and he said he did due diligence. He spoke to the CEO at that time, uh, but still there were many elements that we are probably not aware of. So I'm passionate about not beating the drum of the past, but what can we learn in terms of how can we also include practical emotional intelligence strategies in helping people become more prepared, resilient, and ready? So that is in a big nutshell uh, what I currently do. There's so much to, to unpack there. I was really interested in what you said as well about that background in psychology and how important that's been in your career as well. I've talked to a few people recently about, you know, non-traditional routes into security. And there have been a couple of people that have psychology degrees because, you you know, you understand or have studied people. 
and responses to things and, you know, behavior and emotions and, you know, all of those things. So I think it's really interesting what you say there about potential routine as well. Yeah. And people some often tell me, but Nadia, you're not a psychologist. I said, no, uh, thank God, because then I would have overanalyzed myself. But what I use, I, what I always tell people, emotional intelligence is the bridge. I think having uh, technical experts is critical. Having psychologists, neuroscientists, behavioral scientists is critical. But these are highly trained individuals that often come from their map of the world. So I put my expertise in building bridges and implementing these, right, in developing strategies that work in people's day-to-day life. I mentioned this in another podcast when we take the example of the MGM social engineering attack, which was a tax scam support. And I obviously, I don't know who was responsible or the insights, but we can only imagine that the tax support agent doesn't care or is not going to remember about the neuroscience arguments or behind it that makes, makes him or her fall for such social engineering scams, right? They're not going to remember that when they feel stressed, they're functioning from the hippocampus part of the brain. And when they feel relaxed, they need to be active in their prefrontal cortex and the emotions they feel if they're not used to being assertive or they're working in a sequential way. This is why I'm a big believer in exercising, immersive experience, keeping it simple for people. What does the tech support scam need to know? How comfortable are they when they feel certain emotions that lead to behaviors? And how can you reduce the risk? And here here we need all these different expertise input, but then we need to translate it in people's map of the world. And this is where uh, my work comes in, the communication part implementation based on uh, uh, different uh, work experience and my own expertise. I think what the MGM incident taught us as well is that social engineering doesn't have to be, when you hear hacker, you hear technical, and, but the MGM incident wasn't, it was simplicity itself really, which yeah. had devastating consequences. So, you know, I think what you're saying, well, I know what you're saying there is crucial in terms of, you know, how are people, manipulated is a terrible word, but you know what I mean, you know, how are people duped by these kind of, well, they're con men, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, and the kind of emotional intelligence that plays into that as well. Yeah, now I think what you're talking about is is so important for, for everybody, you know, regardless of you in the industry or you're in business, anybody that, you know, does anything digital. I just want to go back to to what you said about, I mean, we just mentioned it there as well, about um, CISOs and about what's happening, especially in, in the US as well with, you know, SEC regulations and becoming quite litigious. So the first question that I've got for you is actually quite a big one, and it's about the evolving role of the CISO. So in your time in the industry, how have you seen this role change? Um, what do you think are the unique challenges that CISOs are facing? Well, it's a very interesting question with no one-size-fits-all approach. So I think there it actually depends on the organizational. So in general, let's start with a general point of view. From an organizational point of view, cultural point of view, the CISO's role varies. Some organizations have put this, have only a chief information security officer and they don't have a chief information officer. So that actually reduces the friction between push and pull because often if we are playing by the book, chief information officer is risk tolerant. Their responsibility is to provide a highly innovative information technology experience. It's also from my experience working with these clients, but especially from my time at NATO versus chief information security officer is more risk averse. 
is how do we reduce the risk of these technologies uh, creating loophole in the system, right? Keeping the door open. So uh, when there is uh, only the CISO, then they usually have a direct line to the CEO, which is critical because then they can relate it to business continuity and they have a better say. Now, some organizations call them digital manager or IT manager, so they have different titles, but it depends on the organization. Then you have organizations where the CISO reports to a CIO, which creates a certain friction depending on personalities. From my time, the cyber we had a cybersecurity lead uh, for NATO Cyber Operations Center who worked very well with the chief information officer, but also uh, had a direct line to the general manager, a direct line to chief operational officer. So the cultural uh, leadership element was quite transparent. It was also because the general manager at the time had a matrix leadership approach. So even though NATO is quite hierarchical, he really implemented this flat organization. He wanted to have direct access to service line chiefs, to uh, people who had perhaps not high uh, status in hierarchy, but high levels of responsibility that have business impact. Another organization, you may have a quite high power distance. So this is cultural intelligence. So you don't get to the CEO unless you have several uh, layers of hierarchy. So uh, then it makes it difficult for the chief information security officer to have any business impact or any, uh, you know, get his, his or her message uh, of risk uh, reduction across. Even now with the emphasis that cyber resilience is in duty of all and not only the, the IT. Then you have in terms of the role, right? I think from my perspective, there are two things we need to look at. One is evolving from a highly technical role to a leadership role, which is, I think we are quite hard on CISOs because can you imagine if your skill set is to manage cybersecurity risks, is to manage the, you know, the reporting, the situational threat awareness, all those things that are quite technical that come into play. And you also have to manage people. We all love to talk about leadership versus manager, but you need managers because, you know, not everyone is incentivized to be autonomous and great at what they do. You also need to manage people, which already for someone who only has the role of a manager can be quite a challenge because people are challenging, right? You always have different personalities. You always have. So it requires a lot of mental energy and even and then and then we can say oh but they are technical they don't know how to be a leader which is kind of uh easy to say but even for someone who has highly you know uh, people skills they also struggle managing people so this is an additional skill set now and i think we we are missing the transition from upskilling in the sense of being a quite technical role to a leadership role, which is an emotional disruption that comes with discomfort and it adds to the stress that CISOs face. So this is something to keep in mind and how much pressure are we putting on CISOs in terms of, yes, they need to lead people, but it's not only their responsibility to create a healthy security culture, which is why I'm a big believer in working with C-suite and leadership and governance stakeholders to make it a social responsibility, a corporate responsibility. And then the last thing I will say, and this is my personal point of view, which everyone may not agree with, but I'm used to uh, saying things you agree with, is we are, we, we are creating a dichotomy because on one hand, we are putting the CISO role on a pedestal 
there is a lot of vanity around it, right? CISOs now, it's really, you know, sexy to be a CISO because cybersecurity is very hot and everyone is interested. But on the other hand, there's a huge pressure on CISOs because of regulation, because of liability, because of the non-disclosure agreement they sign when they join. And this alone, this dichotomy in vanity, having a high-level position, this is quite exciting in these times because they have really purpose in their mission in creating and building a safe and secure online world. But on the other hand, they're also under immense pressure, which is not always right brought forward, which creates this mental pressure and burnout. And you know, because can you imagine? You know, you you join a company and you absolutely love it, but if S hits the fan. You know you're going to be the black sheep, right? Now, how do you think with that in the back of your mind, are you going to juggle between these two opposing dimensions? So I think this is maybe not comfortable to talk about, but we have to. We have to understand, you know, we have to take away the pressure or not have them carry everything by themselves and really make it a social corporate responsibility that liability is a leadership responsibility. I was talking to um, Chris Brown, actually. He's a CSO and consultant in the episode one of the of Talent First. And he was talking about this isolation that CSOs feel. And that. And I asked the question, you know, are you still seeing that very often CSOs feel like they're on the periphery of the C-suite? And he agreed with that. And we were talking about how creating those relationships with the C-suite and the CEO and having that direct line to the CEO is, is crucial, especially in places like the US and increasingly so in the UK, because it has to be, and, and it's not that the CISO is shirking responsibility, but it's about sharing responsibility and conversations. And, and yes, you have all the insurances in place and so on, but it's making those kind of um, crucial business decisions together because the CISO is part of those business decisions. Yeah. And one thing I will say, though, is from my time in NATO, it's so I understand also the business argument for not having a straight line, because I also was present in examples where a highly technical person actually made the situation worse in by speaking in a very technical manner or raising the alarm and we, and we were very careful with this especially when we're dealing with politicians because the message came across in a way that was not meant to be and raised the alarm too early and then people got involved at an earlier stage and just made the problem worse right mm -hmm. so our function especially in my last uh, position was that public translation hub so we really worked with our security people to help them as well, to for us to understand the security impact and also help with communication and whether this was uh, first worthwhile communicating. And if so, how do you communicate it in a way that actually meets their needs? Because the other, I also saw many presentations where you had an entire military committee rolling their eyes because there was dead by PowerPoint with all these nodes and, and uh, single points of failures and technical details. They couldn't care less, even though it was quite important, right? And again, we may laugh about it, but it's a highly skilled or highly technical discipline. So, and now everyone is interested, but you need to have that art of translation. And, and here is where non-technical people come in, uh, storytellers. And, and this is where I think the security, cybersecurity industry can benefit a lot from creative artists, communicators 
to someone who has no clue of what cybersecurity is and then help them communicate it in a way that the board cares and acts upon it, uh, the CEO, the, you know, different, the, their peers, etc. This is what I'm trying to do as well in my sessions in really having personas from different departments and helping them that they don't care about the whole uh, cybersecurity picture. They care about that specific point and what impact it has uh, on the chief marketing officer, for example. You need outside of the box people who are excellent at communication and translating, no technical background, put them with the technical people, uh, build bridges so they don't, you know, fly in each other's hair. <laughs> but you will get amazing results out of it, right? And, and, and I think this is the future where we're going. It's such a complex role. I, I mean, week on week, I, I must say this sentence, you know, about 50 times, but it is such a complex role and it's becoming more complex. And so when I see, you know, if I do look at job boards and so on, and I see CISO job descriptions that it's just technical, technical, technical with an alphabet of qualifications stuck at the end and no mention. Actually, I actually um, contacted an internal recruiter the other day because um, she put a job description or a job, a job advert up on LinkedIn, which actually talked about, it had a whole section on communication skills and liaising with the board. And I actually <laughs> sent her a message to say, hooray, it's the first job description uh, that I'd seen that actually had a section about that in it. So the rest of it is all, we're great to work for. These are all the technical things we need you to do. These are all the qualifications that you have to absolutely have to have. Here are all the degrees and master's degrees that you need and no mention at all of interpersonal skills. And I think uh, like even like big corporations or the cybersecurity industry can learn a lot from startups, even not in the same industry, because they, they know that they have a really amazing way in attracting talent, right? And really getting people to work for the mission. So why not work with startups or founders or, or, or how they actually attract people and then have a phased approach? Because I, I mean, I always like to poke the bear and I also say you like you if you have a highly technical job description you know who cares but you can't expect also to go from one way completely change 360 degree I think it will take time uh, time we don't have necessarily but I if we start being creative and for example working with startups who have high retention attraction rates and retention rates and look at how they use storytelling and then implement it as a pilot project, for example, to see how it works. That's one way of doing it, right? But I think one of the things also in NATO, often the, we had these external uh, consultants or think tanks coming in and proposing a whole new approach, which was brilliant, but it never got implemented because it was too big bang for how NATO was functioning. So you obviously need to implement things in the organization's map of the world start with small wins that's how you build trust as well and then you roll it out so it's change happens to us disruption happens within people you want to reduce the resistance to change by actually showing the alternative is not as scary as people think because it's just evolution my son 11 year old son almost told me the other day mommy we have to evolve in life it's not about feeling wrong but we have to evolve in life with all these changes that are happening i'm like wow who dropped the mic <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
very wise children, aren't they? They just come out with things and you think, oh, okay, that's fair enough. I, I, I really, I really believe that the universe gives you a taste of your own medicine. So uh, my sarcasm is coming back to me through my own offspring. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. My 14-year-old daughter is one of the driest people I've ever met and it's totally and utterly my fault. So um, yeah, no, completely. So let's go back to talking about EQ. And to me, I don't know if you agree, but EQ has become a bit of a catch-all. So we kind of drop it in without really thinking about the true meaning of it. So I just wondered, obviously, you you founded Thrive with, with EQ and, you know, it's going great guns and you are you know, a fabulous consultant. So from your perspective, could you just tell us a little bit about what EQ means for you? First of all, I'm blushing. So thank you very much for blowing wind up now behind. <laughs> I, no, but it's interesting. I don't actually get uh, 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 a lot of feedback usually. People always, and I, and I think this is in general, we need to appreciate people more because it always feels, you know, uh, nice that, that what we're doing is making an impact. So thank you very much, Michelle, for mentioning that. And now I forgot the question. <laughs> Yeah, so in a nutshell, what's EQ? <laughs> uh, what's EQ? <laughs> yeah, thank you. So I actually I, I I agree with you that in you know like everything when something becomes hype or trendy we use it as a buzzword without necessarily understanding what it is. So I like to use this analogy when you look at the elevator. Your elevator represents your IQ, your cognitive skills. Cognitive skills is what you use for strategic thinking, for analytical thinking, for long-term decision-making, for really thinking rationally. Versus your EQ, which translates into emotional quotient, which is how you measure emotional intelligence. This is why there's a difference between EQ and EI. I use EQ because... From a marketing perspective, private EQ sounds better than private EI. So EQ is how you deal with your immediate challenges. How is your trajectory upwards or downwards? You can be highly intellectual. You can be genius uh, Einstein. But if you don't know how to deal with people, if you don't understand people, if you can't connect and build relationships, if you can't stay strong under challenges, if you don't know how to manage, not control your emotions, but manage your emotions when faced with challenges, then you are not going to be successful in any endeavor because we need to be able to learn how uh, to manage our emotions. Now, some of the, I had did this training once where someone was highly trained in stress management but still couldn't figure out why in certain situations they had low levels of stress tolerance, so they stressed out much quicker than in other. Then I used my example. I said I was deployed in Afghanistan, so I had huge levels of stress. Actually, we were trained for that. But no one prepared me for offspring stress. <laughs> it was a very different kind of st Still today, I, I can become quite stressed in certain situations. So I think, and this is where emotional intelligence comes in. It's not static. It's not a, a privilege. Anyone can build it. Now we assume, and in general, this is the case, but not always, people who have more life experience have higher levels of emotional intelligence, which is true. From my experience, when I do these assessments, younger people tend to have lower levels of emotional intelligence. And even people with high levels of emotional intelligence, even myself, I can, at moments, display low levels of emotional intelligence. It's not enough to only have high levels of emotional intelligence, but how do you use it? 
And uh, when we go a bit deeper, there are several schools or disciplines. So you have, everyone knows Daniel Goleman, who actually is the, they think he is the founding father of emotional intelligence, but he's not. It's Peter Salovey from the Yale uh, University, who also founded the Emotional Intelligence Center. And then what I like to work with, which is actually a model uniquely designed for the workplace, has several markers, 15 in total, which actually makes it easier and more measurable to help people develop their emotional intelligence within their map of the world. And this is how I use it for cybersecurity because criminals and scammers and people who try to rip off people often prey on people's emotion in a dark way. And how do you learn to protect yourself to understand how your emotions play a role in making you fall in the first place? how emotions play a role in fighting each other during when managing breaches or when dealing with stress, in understanding how you can become more ready to work together and work well together as a diverse team in managing emotions. So it's really a leadership thing as well. And this is why I believe emotional intelligence is important, not only to understand the science behind it, but to understand if someone has low levels of assertiveness, which means they are unlikely to challenge an opinion or to challenge someone who wants something for them. If they work in a place, a culture where hierarchy is highly valued and perhaps even you know, fearing their boss, it is likely that when they are dealing with a scam or a deep uh, fake or impersonation, they're not going to challenge the person because their assertiveness is skills. Now, how do you teach them that respecting your boss and learning how to work with one person doesn't mean you cannot use higher, so you can have lower levels of assertiveness with your boss, but you can have higher levels of assertiveness when you get a call or when someone sends an email or when someone is pressuring you, right? It's not one way or the other. It's kind of learning a how to use your toolbox. Of course, if I, for example, working with a client, I'm not going to be highly assertive for the client because it's not going to build trust or a relationship. I will share what I think is in everyone's best interest, but I do it in a very respectful way. But when I get a scammer on the phone who is using fear monitoring and pressure, you can be sure I will use high levels of assertiveness and shut it down immediately, right? And one is not opposing to the other, but you need to teach people that because Often, because of all the things, you know, life happens and the responsibilities, we are so focused or so used to use the same hammer for every situation. So how do you teach people to use a screwdriver, to use a hammer, and to use all kinds of other accessories and toolbox, which I maybe you have, a, I, I have a very small vocabulary for the toolbox. I know hammer and screwdriver in English. <laughs> So let's, let's let's stay with the analogy of tools and um, let's talk about, let's go back to the CISO again and talk about what tools that you can then equip the CISO with in order to, you know, employ that EQ when, when dealing with, and we've talked about dealing with stakeholders and the board and, and so on. So how do those two things come together, the idea of EQ and equipping the CISO? Very good question. So let me give you some very practical examples. And the first one, for example, when we look at the self-perception skill, it has three EQ tools, how we view ourselves, self-regard, 
how we self-actualization, ambition, goal, goal-oriented, and emotional awareness, how well we are able to identify our emotions and the root cause. Now, a huge imp- imp- or important tool for CISOs is self-regard and from a functional perspective. How do they view their role? Do they view their role purely as technical? Do they have some performance anxiety when it comes to stepping into a leadership role and implementing a security awareness culture, which requires people skills, which requires getting people to do something that is cyber hygiene, which almost no one wants to do because they're so caught up in their day-to-day tasks. And these can all create anxiety. So how so someone, a CISO, can have high levels of confidence in their abilities but they can have a low level of functional self-regard, especially when you are in transitioning CISO or entering new, because what was familiar is no longer familiar. So you're dealing with unfamiliar territory and not in terms of your skill set, but in terms of the environment of the people. It's only normal that you feel discomfort and that you doubt yourself because it's a biological response. But this is a really important to work on self-regard in terms of really understanding your functional regard and then emotional awareness. What kind of emotion does it trigger and how does it impact your behavior? Then when we look at self-expression, here, uh, for example, independence is important. People who have high levels of independence, and usually we see this in technical field, they are much better working alone in terms of dealing with uh, issues or dealing with, you know, the threat awareness or technology. They love working in isolation. And I'm not speaking for everyone, but if you are someone who has used to have high autonomy and the way you think only by yourself, it's going to be a problem with your peers, right? Because your peers will see things very differently and from a multiple uh, different uh, points of view. So if you may think that you're doing the right thing in uh, solving an IT issue that you don't think impacts the other departments within the organization and only communicate it when it's too late, and then you get, you know, lashback from your peers because you've not involved them in, in early on. Uh, the other thing is when we look at interpersonal skills, empathy, empathy, seek to understand before being understood. It's also used as a buzzword, but it's quite difficult, especially if you are dealing in a very technical field where you're using reason and critical thinking skills and logic and, you know, sequential uh, data processing. Uh, you are in a different region of the brain than where empathy is located. I give myself always as an example when I'm working on scenarios or doing something intellectual and uh, the bunny comes or my son comes, I snap sometimes because I'm really focused on something else. I don't have the capacity to show empathy. So it's not about being empathetic all the time. It's becoming aware, right, and then shifting or if you're going to have an important stakeholder meeting or conversation, you have to prepare yourself. You have to let go of any emotions from past uh, meetings or discussions so you don't bring it into the conversation. You have to focus on the outcome that you want. You have to be present, eliminate distraction, and use active listening. Right. So these are just some examples of how they can use the EQ as a toolbox to exercise their leadership skills. And also for upskilling and reskilling, because the CISO role is uh, changing and it has to be flexible and adaptable. Change happens to us, disruption happens within us. So the EQ can help you minimize the disruption or at least help you get through it.
Say that again. Change happens to us. Disruption happens within us. The original quote is from William Bridges. It's a four-hour read, and I would recommend it to anyone who's going to transitions in life. And he mentioned in his book, there are three phases when it comes to change with how people experience it. So the first phase is the grieving phase, right? Letting go. When you start something new, often people don't let go of the old. So if you're a CISO going to working for a new company, or if you have got a promotion from cybersecurity manager to chief information security officer, take the time to grieve the old version of you, right? Uh, and then you have the neutral phase, which is the in-between. This is where we feel uncomfortable because we haven't let fully go yet of our past, but we haven't embraced yet the new one because it comes with new skill sets, etc. Often this feels uncomfortable, so we skip this phase and then we go immediately into the new. But we need to go from a from an emotional point of view or biological point of view, need to allow for adaptation time. So to accept the anxiety, the fear, etc., but not make it worse as it, as it already is. And the third phase is embracing the new. Often when we apply for positions or when we enter a position, we enter from an old version perspective, but an old version perspective doesn't have the tools and skills and the mindset necessary to deal with the new version's challenges, right? So it's also understanding that I may not know now what to do, but I trust that my future version will know what to do as I gain this experience. And I call it disruption because now we are facing an unprecedented uh, parallel of challenges, right? It's it's a change after change and uncertainty. And when you look at the macro environment, the war, the conflict, the climate change, the cybersecurity threats, the news, the headlines, companies layoff, uh, stress, workload. So these are, you know, causing quite emotional turmoil for many people, whether we like to admit it or not. So understanding the change when it comes to processes and systems is very different than when it comes to people. And this is where emotional intelligence can help in reducing the discomfort as much as possible, but allowing people to feel the natural cycle of being human. Mm. Whether you're a CISO or not, you're still human. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, and I think this, this entire conversation is, is going to help people to decide whether or not that management role is for them management leadership you know because honestly not everybody makes a good manager or leader because it's really hard and and not everybody has that innate empathy and it's you know it's difficult because sometimes as a leader like I've been a leader myself and obviously I, I run my own business now so um but whether it's in education or recruitment there are times when you know you, you've really got to work on that empathy because you just want someone to get something done but they might be having a bad time or they're struggling with it or whatever. So that part of you has got to be, right, I have to see things from their perspective. I need to be supportive and work with them and then say, you've been equipped with, you know, like you say, the tools that you need, off you go. But it's it's sometimes so difficult not just to say to someone, could you please just go and do that thing that I've told you to do? It's, it's really yeah. hard. And not, I don't think everybody, well, I know that everybody is not suited to that. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with you. And I think from my from my time also in NATO, I've seen too many times that not the wrong people, but highly expert people who are wonderful people were put in manager position and went all downhill from that. Mm. Because you take away what they love most, which is technical analysis, dealing with problems, not people. And doesn't make them bad people or bad leaders. They can be excellent leaders in their field, right? Or excellent, excellent business leader. 
But not, as you say, not everyone has people skills. Not everyone has a natural ability to feel empathic and actually gets their energy from. But from a business perspective, what happens, they just look at technicalities. Okay, we need, you know, we need the manager. So you are a technical expert and you're going to become a manager now. This is a whole different skill set and the whole, you know, and this is, and then you wonder why people fall in burnout. Yeah. Can you imagine the pressure that people face and in, in, in not doing what feels natural? Of course, you can upskill. Of course, you can teach people. But you also have to take into consideration what are people's character strengths because character strengths uh, energize us. How are you going to upskill them in a way, right? This is where emotional intelligence comes in, where they also enjoy doing the technical stuff or what energizes them or balance it out with people management. Uh, what can you outsource? Because I, for example, I'm very well aware that yes, I have managed people, but I'm much more of a leader than than managing people because I enjoy inspiring, vision, etc. But put me in the room where I have to spend 50% of my time on administration, etc. I mean, please shoot me now, and I'm very open about it. I can lead people, but I don't necessarily see myself as, you know, I can do it, but I don't necessarily will become excited in managing, right, people. Mm. Again, as an entrepreneur, this is also what I do because I have to manage the project. I have to do the boring stuff. What works for me is understanding what energizes me and balancing it out. So I learned to become self disciplined how my mind works what i tell myself the invisible stress and i manage my energy because in life you're not going to do only what energizes you you're also going to do the boring stuff you're also going to do stuff you don't like the difficult stuff it's how we perceive things as well but these are all emotional things or emotional experiences that people go through some in less intensity than others but just Placing a highly expert as a management uh, in a management position because of lack of resources, you're just gonna, you know, a recipe for failure. I totally and utterly agree. You can't just drop somebody in and then cross your fingers and hope for the best. Exactly, <laughs> which what happens a lot because, you know, we're trying to uh, optimize cost, but in the end, you're just increasing the cost because you have, they go on burnout then you have to pay sick leave then you have to do the you know this very well recruitment onboarding and then the whole cycle starts again yeah every just look at the, for example HGPT came out right and then you had a whole wave of businesses laying off people because oh now they have ai and i'm not speaking for all AI application, but look at how stupid ChatGPT can become now after mm-hmm. one year. And it's like, you know, it's it's interesting to, to see how a trend or hype can also influence these uh, decisions because you think, okay, well, AI will take uh, away a lot of what people used to do. But after a certain period of time, you're going to realize, I wish I had someone, right? The person back because AI is not uh, doing it in the way it should be. So it is, it's, there's a lot of trial and error, and it's like understanding how do we transition in the most optimal way together? How can we do things better? But understanding that managing change when it comes to people is very different than when it's just by moving high pions around like chess. We have come to the end of our time. I'm very oh, sad. It's got started. <laughs> We could just keep talking for ages. So um, I think it's definitely something that we need to revisit. There is there is so much more advice to give. 
on you know, communication and interpersonal skills and how to talk to the board. I think we could we could just keep talking for hours. But I just want to finish with you telling us what's next for you. And um, you mentioned, um, I mean, we talked um, a while ago about CISO Sanctuary and obviously Thrive with EQ. So, um, yeah, tell us what's what's going on next for you. So I'm actually quite excited because I've worked a lot in trying to, based on feedback, develop a very comprehensive service offering. So I now have two main flagship programs within TriVTQ. One is the Emotional Firewall Academy. So I have uh, three uh, courses on how to develop ransomware resilience for critical infrastructure services. So for leaders that want to have an understanding on how emotional intelligence can help build ransomware resilience. And I also offer e-learning both off the shelf and customized against social engineering scenarios, purely fake focusing on the emotional intelligence uh, markers and how they can help reduce the risk. And part of the academy, I also offer C-suite and governance stakeholder coaching on cyber resilience. So from my time at NATO, I put this expertise in service of my clients and helping them uh, understand cyber from a non-technical perspective, from their map of the world and how they can use emotional intelligence to build it. And I also offer a membership. I created uh, what I named the CISO Sanctuary precisely because of this dichotomy of having the CISO as a vanity, right, on a pedestal, but also the pressure and invisible stress they face that comes with this uh, position and which is quite unique. So I created a membership where I use emotional intelligence strategies specific to challenges that CISO face. So this is all part of the Emotional Firewalls Academy. Then emotional intelligence is at the core of what I do. And precisely because a lot of people, you know, use emotional intelligence as a buzzword. So I'm launching the EQ Oasis, which is basically a learning hub, everything about emotional intelligence, right? It will be a, a free challenge on how you can use the EQ markers in, in your life uh, as well personal leadership and um, coaching and community services as well in how can we use emotional intelligence to better manage the uncertainty we're facing, to better manage, you know, build resilience, build those skill sets from an individual perspective. I got a lot of feedback from this newsletter that I share. And even though some people love the long form, but other people say, okay, but what can I do with it, right? What can I, so that made me think, how can I create something it will actually give a space to people to relief because there's a lot of pressure and and I truly believe emotional intelligence can uh, create that. So these are the two flagship programs that I'm running for TriVTQ. And I think my vision is ultimately to partner up with others and build an academy, like an immersive experience academy for emotional firewalls really helping Bill, you know, working with psychologists, working with digital leaders, working with behavioral scientists, working with practitioner, with operational users in creating these immersive experiences to based on emotional intelligence to help people understand the impact of their decisions. Often when we do cybersecurity awareness, you just watch a video, but do you understand what it means for you? If you actually experience it in a safe space, and then you see the impact of your action, then you choose something different, like higher levels of emotional intelligence specifically, that is when you actually get people like, ah, oh, okay, now I understand why, and now I understand how to implement it. Now I can develop habits to do so. So this is my, my, my bigger vision. 
Wonderful. And any links to your work I'm, I will put with the podcast and so people can click on that and uh, follow you on LinkedIn and see what you are doing because I think the work that you're doing is it's just so incredibly important. Um, Nadia, thank you so much for being my guest. I, I always absolutely love our conversations and I, you know, you, you're so busy. Um, so thanks very much for your time today. Thank you. It's uh, uh, my pleasure. I love our conversations, like I said, both online and offline, which we will not share. <laughs> but you are an amazing person and you always actually, whenever I speak to Michelle, uh, my energy levels go up. And I always tell, you know, don't watch people's words, but watch how they make you feel. So thank you for energizing me and always uh, having great positive energy. Oh, thank you. Thank you.